Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at Hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. This is always a, a great passage because it, it's really a tag team that goes along with the Torah reading uh, Yitro back in Exodus 17 through 20, which uh, encapsulates the Ten Commandments. So between the two of these, we see a, a generational difference between them. But as you saw throughout the reading today, you'll see that there is a link between the generations. And seem, indeed, it seems kind of strange with some of the language there about um, who the covenant was and wasn't given to. That some of that we'll be getting to a little bit later. Some of the, the highlights, as we saw at the ending part of Numbers, uh, the reading Matot Mase, which kind of has the travel log of all of the stops after the, the people left Mitzrayim. You know, one of the key things is to remember where you came from and where you're going. That's a part of what these opening chapters here of Devarim or Deuteronomy are all about. And remember why you left that way of life out of and why you want to go into the kingdom or as it's represented into the land which the Lord is taking us to. And important for us even today is to remember who took us out of that house of bondage and that it actually was a house of bondage. Some of us may forget over time and uh, linger out around the house of bondage and you know, try on the chains and the shackles and hmm, it wasn't so bad. <laughs> See some kind of hints of that uh, during the Exodus experience of, hey, you know, the, the food was great and uh, it was wonderful back there in the house of bondage. So, a warning to us today to not um, glamorize the lifestyle that we left and, and go back to it. But rather, when we see that expressed in chapter six here of clinging to the Lord with all of our hearts and with all of our lives and with all of our resources. And the important part in that is to not only do it for ourselves, but to then pass this on to the next generation, to people around us, and pass on this connection to the Creator. But again, that gets to the, the heart of chapter 6, is that this connection to the Creator. It's not just a idea or thoughts about the Creator or uh, nice notions, but actually a connection, which is... Uh, part of the description of why the heart aspect is so important. And also, as this passage closes out, a reminder that what it means to be a holy people, a holy, as we remember from uh, Kadash, means to set apart, from so that that which is set apart becomes Kadosh, which means holy or set apart. But a reminder at the end of this is not because you're so fantastic or you're special of a nation, but because of the promises that were made earlier and the trust of those leaders from Avraham and the trust in the Lord that was passed down. That that is the key thing that goes from generation to generation. So, in that context is what we'll be looking at some of the aspects here today. So, some of uh, what some of what we'll be taking a look at is we'll be actually uh, jumping right down into the heart of the matter. Uh, but one of the important things that we should take a look at is in chapter four. And especially into the aspects where it's talking about uh, Deuteronomy 4.2, where it says, you shall not add to the word nor take away from it. And that's important and a great way that this, uh, this discourse is organized because it proceeds right into chapter 5 and the retelling of the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words. Because we 
Well, as we chug along, we'll see this here soon about this warning will show up again in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 32. And we see it specifically uh, expressed in Deuteronomy 13 about this warning about the dreamer of dreams, the presenter of signs. And we see a couple of aspects from Israel's history about the serpent on the pole and why you have to be very careful that you don't just get wrapped up into signs, signs and wonders. And we see that in the Gospels where Yeshua confronts people who are looking for signs. He did show signs, but he was not just churning out signs just for the sake of signs to cement uh, just because they wanted him to do so. And we'll see a little bit of what is involved with that. But specifically in uh, the chapter uh, chapter 13 of Deuteronomy, we see that one of the key warnings for the prophets is what is it that the prophet is doing? Is the, is the prophet inciting to apostasy, basically turning the people away from the Lord? Is the is the prophet also promoting infidelity to the Lord uh, turning people away from the one who brought them life from the one who laid out these commandments. And as you saw in the reading today, the one who presented these things in such a way that all the nations around will say, well, who on in time, who in history has ever done this? Uh, for any people that would take them out of another nation to uh, divide the sea, to take them into the land. Who else has done this among all the uh, points in time in history? So uh, some of what we uh, could see in this a little bit of a, a note here from the sage uh, Nemonides or otherwise known as Rambam about being careful about the adding to or taking away. Uh, one of the things that he wrote about this specifically is that, as uh, a quotation here, when the sages add to the commandments by creating a fence around the Torah, for example, by extending the laws of incest, it, this is in itself the fulfillment of a Torah commandment, though it is very important to distinguish between such rulings and the actual Torah declared by the mouth of the Almighty. So we see much earlier than that in Mark chapter 7 that this is exactly what was the point of um, adding to or taking away from that you have to delineate between what is a teaching or an expounding upon and what is an actual rewriting of it. You know, we talk a lot about that today with the court system and are they interpreting it? Are they helping us uh, live with it? Are they making it alive or are they rewriting the constitution? So we, there's the term they call the judicial activism when they are doing the latter where they are going in and by their uh, quote, making it more understandable for today, they actually rewrite what was the original. So that is a warning <laughs> throughout many thousands of years that you do not do that if you're actually being true to the original. So quotation here from Mark chapter 7, you could say the, the punchline of this particular parable. Mark chapter 7 verses 6 through 9 says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart, again, what we saw there in, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, their heart is far from me, but in vain. Do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men? Which is a quotation from Isaiah 29, 13. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, quote, You are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. Unquote. That's a warning for <laughs> any particular generation that comes down, is that... What is it that you're actually helping people with? Are you helping them understand the words of God to build that connection with the creator 
as it's uh, described there in chapter 6, to uh, cling to, to cleave to the Creator? Or are you actually creating a different God for people to follow by, um, <laughs> by rewording it too much, you might say? Uh, something else that we saw in uh, when we were going through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which is Matthew 5 through 7, and the Sermon on the Plain, which is pretty much most of Luke chapter 6, we saw there that Yeshua specifically said that that was not his mission, encapsulated, well, first passages from Matthew 5, 17 through 20. It's one of those uh, passages that, you know, when you have kind of like a key foundational text to link other things and filter other things through, these two passages we're looking at in Matthew 5 and Matthew 16 really fit these together. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And a parallel passage over in Luke chapter 16, the, you could call this the second witness of this statement. So if uh, there might be the contention, well, you know, maybe that was taken out of context over there in Matthew chapter 5. Well, here's the second witness to this in Luke chapter 16. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. So between these two passages, you got the either the least of the commandments, um, which some of the sages point to being the one about uh, re- removing <laughs> removing uh, birds uh, from the nest to one that's where you're talking about the least stroke of a letter, whether it be uh, thought as the uh, hanging points or the delineation between a, you know, a resh or a dalet, or whether it's the smallest of letters being a yod, which kind of looks like an apostrophe if you're looking at it. But one of these things that we see in this passage and the two things that we saw here so far is that these are connecting to the, not only the warnings, but the instructions that we see in Deuteronomy 6, which we just read, and chapters 13 and 18, which we'll be getting to in coming weeks. So here is just a preview of coming attractions, but it's important to put these two passages from Yeshua into the context of what he was drawing from. So, pointing forward to this great prophet or the prophet who is going to come. But what is the prophet going to do? One of the things we looked at in the, in the previous passage, the opening one, uh, Devarim, the opening chapters of Deuteronomy was, was that there was this great hope for the expounding of the law and the messianic promise of the Mashiach that was going to come and to expound the law to the point where people would be coming to the Mashiach because the law would be flowing out, the word of the Lord would be flowing out from Yerushalayim once again in in the latter days, which is also hinted to in the passage we read today in the parasha. But this, this section we're looking at in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, says, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or the dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
and with all your soul. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him, and you shall keep his commandments. Listen to his voice, serve him, and cling to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death, because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God, who brought you from the land of Mitzrayim and redeemed you from the house of slavery to seduce you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from among you. So thus you get one of these tests here. The test number one is, is this prophet telling you to go after other gods whom you have not known and serve them? So key to that and We'll be seeing this expounded as we go through the book of Devarim. The key to that is whom you have not known. Key to the understanding here is actually knowing. And that gets into a little bit of the cryptic language we saw at the beginning about who was given the covenant and who was not given the covenant. So, some of the key aspects of that that go after there, or halach, and from halach, uh, the Hebrew um, verb of halach, you get the idea of halacha or the way of walking. And way of walking is where you get the term for the way that a sage or a congregational leadership is pointing, okay, this is the way that this congregation should walk, or this is the way this congregation is going to walk. So. When then you see the apostles point out, and you see in the prophet uh, Yemeriyahu said, um, he was very angry with the shepherds. And the message from the Lord was against these shepherds because the shepherds are scattering or leading the sheep in the wrong direction. So the flock of the Lord was being taken away from the Lord, even while they were claiming to be working for the Lord. So, one of those uh, key warnings about following another god, Achar, that's kind of what we were talking about earlier, versus Echad, versus Achar, or another. Be careful, are we following the one, or are we following another? Uh, You may say, oh, slight little distinction, and in the original language, it was... Uh, even more distinguishable than it is, you know, between you know a, a Dalit and a Resh in the original um, Hebrew versus the Aramaic block script. But even today, you could see, wow, as time passes, maybe the distinctions between one and another get a little bit blurred over time if you don't lock into what the original actually was. So. In this, we'll um, kind of pass on a little bit. So, what we see here is the test for a prophet coming, like Moshe. What is this prophet going to do? So, the words that God gave to Moshe were the testimony of God. Now, this is going to be very important when we get into Deuteronomy chapter 5. So, these testimony of God reveals who God is what he's been doing, and what he wants. So, you must know. Knowing somebody is so that you know how they behave. So, if they behave differently, you're thinking, well, either something is really wrong, or maybe this isn't the right person. So, consistent with these tests that we see in Deuteronomy 13 is that this coming prophet, the prophet, would speak the words according to the words that God gave Moshe. So they should be parallel. It should not be in conflict or fighting against each other. Or as you see in theological circles, as expressed in the um, explanations that you'll see in some commentaries related to the the, uh, Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7, they'll call this the the uh, six antitheses where it's prefaced by, well, you've heard it said, but I tell you. And something we talked about when we went through the passage is that that's actually a rabbinical idiom where you're 
you basically have an introduction of where a teacher is going to say, okay, now I will give you uh, my elucidation of it or my unfolding of this, unpacking of this. So rather than a statement being, okay, that's what was said before, but I'm going to tell you something different and totally rewrite it. This is, okay, well, here's a way I can help you understand that so you can build a better connection to what it was. And that indeed, when you look at the totality of the Sermon on the Mount, starting from the passage we saw earlier in verses 17 through 20, the heart of the Sermon on the Mount is that this is linked into the testimony of God and the heart of the testimony of God expressed with the 10 words um, in expressed there in Exodus 20 and in Deuteronomy 5 but also boiled down further to what we see in Deuteronomy chapter six, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your strength. And as you see expressed also in the discussions with Yeshua had expressed also with the idea, and you will love your neighbor as yourself um, recorded in Leviticus 19. So, when we get into Deuteronomy chapter 5 and see the retelling of the, the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, we see exactly that. We see exactly those two things. Love the Lord, love other people like you love yourself. So, thus, to pass all of these tests, these true followers of God must learn what God gave Israel through Moshe to realize is the prophet speaking like the prophet or is the prophet actually a false prophet? So test number two, one of the things that we saw here in the, in the Shema where it, it says, hear O Israel, Lord, our God is one. And as that's uh, quoted in Matthew 22, Mark 12 and Luke chapter 10, we see that that's also related to, the test in Deuteronomy 13, when it's talking about that this love, that this love for the Lord is encapsulated in the words of the prophet. So a part of this love is fearing God, following God or walking behind God, walking after God. And also that walking after involves to shamar, to keep his commandments, to watch, to preserve them. And you see that Yeshua really connected love for him with love from the Father and observance of his commandments. Remember, you know, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He expressed that several times in the Gospel of Yohanan or John. So, thus, it's very consistent what we see in Matthew chapter 5, 17 through 20, that we should not think that he would be coming to abolish the law and the prophets because his statement was, you know, if you will love me, you will keep my commandments. The love between the father and the son involves observing the things that the father commanded. So thus we see in Matthew, or John chapter 14, verse 20, uh, 21, and actually, it says, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will lo- be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will disclose myself to him. So, one of the key aspects of really understanding who the Mashiach is, who Yeshua is, is to realize what his role as the prophet was. That prophet foretold by Moshe that was going to be coming. So, one of the key things to get at in this topic of, well, some people will take a look at uh, Matthew 5, 17 through 20 and say, well, those um, things that are translated as fulfilled or accomplished in Matthew chapter 5, um, would there be actually a time where God would say, okay, well, uh, plan A, Israel didn't work, so now we're going to go plan B, the church. So are we now going to abolish or annul the law and the prophets? 
in favor of something different, a different tack or approach. So one of the first things that you note in Matthew 5.17 is where he's talking about, is translated about uh, to annul or abolish or destroy them. It comes from the Greek word of katulo. And so is that saying that this would be uh, overthrowing, destroying the prophets? And he said, no, that was not what he was going to do. And secondly, uh, one thing we've discussed in the past about this, very good to emphasize yet again, is that what's commonly translated in English as fulfill, um, some people, is a good way to explain it, will say fill full, which kind of gets to more of the the old English form of it, but nevertheless, the under the hood in the Greek is the uh, Greek verb of uh, pleru, or form of pleru. And as you follow it through the word, uh, through the the apostolic writings, you'll see as the lexicon say, this means to make it full or to complete it. And uh, people will say, well, that just means that you're bringing it to an end. But one of the things we see in the usage of that uh, comes from uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, where we see this word, pleru, a form of it, being used. So it says, For this reason also, since the day we heard it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled, pleru, with the knowledge of his will and in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all his respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing the knowledge of God. So thus we'll ask ourselves that you may be pleru filled with knowledge. And you're not talking about ending the knowledge of his will. We're talking about making that knowledge of his will in spiritual wisdom and understanding more. Not less, but more. So, one of the things that uh, you see, even if you look into the NIV study Bible, so if if you're talking with somebody and they're uh, confused because they may have heard somebody say something differently, um, if they happen to have a NIV study Bible, just point them to this. And the note that's mentioned there under um, Matthew 5, 17, and where it says, Jesus fulfilled the law, in the sense that he gave it its full meaning. He emphasized its deep underlying principles and total commitment to it rather than mere external acknowledgement, which is nothing different from we just a week or so ago, we read uh, Isaiah chapter one, in which you get some pretty harsh language when, you know, it says about the loathing of the new moons and the festivals. Well, what was the reason for the loathing of it? It is exactly this situation. It is that you have the leadership of Israel at the time of Yeshiahu the prophet, where you had the decline in the southern kingdom of Yehuda and the big decline in the northern kingdom. They had gone downhill to the point where they were externally acknowledging it, but their hearts, their, their clinging to the Lord was just not there. Our next topic in this discussion, which is actually Deuteronomy 5 itself. So, you might call this the, the 10 words uh, redo or the 10 words done again, the 10 commandments revisited, uh, the sequel, however else you want to describe it. But one of the things that's helpful when we talk about either the, what we have recorded in Exodus chapter uh chapter 20 or in here in Deuteronomy chapter five is it's to reflect that there is a little difference in numbering of the commandments. So this is a chart that uh, someone came up with. It almost looks like an eye chart here, but um, just notes here that the different numbering of the commandments uh, based on the various uh, traditions, whether it be from um, a Jewish or Talmudic approach versus the, you have the Anglican Reformed, and a lot of uh, Christians uh, will take one approach. You have the uh, Orthodox, 
we'll take, uh, this is the Christian Orthodox, we'll take uh, a different approach, and then the Roman Catholic and the Lutheran, to a certain degree, will take yet another approach. So, that, um, you, you might say that there's not a huge difference in the way that they're, quote, numbered, you know, which is number one, which is number two, but one of the things to note here is that when you're talking about the Jewish approach to it, that I am the Lord your God is seen as a first statement. That is a, the key part of the beginning of it. And so much so that I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me, is taken as the first one. Um, you, you might commonly see the the version of it uh, in a lot of Christian circles would just start it with, you shall have no other gods before me, but the importance of I am the Lord your God to say why that God is the God to actually follow because it qualifies it and says why I am the one who took you out from the house of bondage. I'm the one as we saw in our passage today, I'm the one who took you out and I'm the one who will bring you in. So that is a very important part of the testimony of the Lord is I am the Lord, your God. So distinguishing it from anybody else, any other supposed deity, any other comer that would come along, which is why that statement, as we saw later in our passage today, where it says, who else has ever done this? So thus another great testimony of I am the Lord, your God. Well, who else has there ever been who has done this, that to perform these wonders on a superpower to humble it, to destroy it, to bring it to its knees, yet this was a nation inside of another nation. And if you take it back to Avraham to call out, or as we were going through Genesis, remember, we saw that it was almost a bit strange how you would see Avraham uh, being a a quite a, a significant power where you even had uh, Sodom, the king of Sodom, coming to him for help. We mentioned in passing before we got started here today about the archaeological uh, digs that have been going on at a site that is thought to be Sodom and the uh, northeast, uh, really the north, um, really the just on the eastern shore of the Ardennes, just as it gets ready to go down and dump into the Dead Sea is where this dig has been going on, and that was a very significant city. So, thus to have the king of Sodom coming to Avraham as a major force, a major power for help, uh, that's quite significant. So, helps to testify when you're saying, I'm the Lord your God, I'm the one who can do this, I'm the one who did this back in time to your ancestors. So, Thus, it helps differentiate and declare what is meant by the, uh, the God, the powerful one who you're following. And thus, it helps clarify the testimony that's later to come. So, one of the, the things, a great passage from uh, the first letter from the Apostle Yochanan, First uh, John chapter 4, verse 20, says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And that, uh, for me, is a, a great kind of framing part for as we look at these 10 words and how various people over the centuries have grouped them together and seen cross connections between them. This is a great overarching thing to see how they relate to each other in how our relations are with the creator and how our relations are with humanity. So thus, you can see the two greatest commandments expressed in Deuteronomy chapter 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and also from Leviticus 19, verse 18 says, you know, um, you will love your neighbor as yourself. And the whole thing is, is, do not hold a grudge against your neighbor, but love your neighbor as yourself. So, to be selfless in your approach 
to your love for other people. And as noted here in this text in 1 John chapter 4, that uh, someone is saying, I love God, and that's expressing it with the most selfless uh, form of the Greek word there of agapio. So that agape love, that selfless love, often described as, as charity, but the selfless love for God, not a passing love, not a friendly love, but this is the deep selfless love for God. How can you say that you have that for God that you would give your heart, your soul, and your strength, your, your devotions, your life, and your resources if you cannot put those three on the line for those in your midst and those around you? So the, that's why it's good to look at the connections between these. And what we'll be looking at further is just one particular uh, arrangement of them. People have arranged the commandments, say, for, uh, based on the, the numberings that we, we saw earlier, whether it be um, you know, a traditional Christian or, or uh, the Jewish uh, arrangement of them. Um, you have one through four, so going from the beginning through the the Sabbath commandment, grouping those together, and then grouping the uh, five through ten as being another group. So love for the divine, so your vertical relationships, and then the five through ten is another grouping. We'll say those are your horizontal or your interpersonal relationships between people. So your connection with God your connection with other people. And as the apostle really aptly puts it, if you cannot get your devotion working vertically and horizontally, then your whole thing is actually messed up. And thus you may not even have the vertical connection with heaven that you think you have. If your horizontal connections, your interpersonal relationships are not expressing selflessness in your devotion, selflessness in your um, putting your life on the line and selflessness in the way you treat your resources. If you're having a problem with other people, then maybe your vertical connection is also having problems. And it's helpful to uh, to take the Apostle Paul's advice on this. And as he says, you know, as much as it's in your power to live at shalom with everybody, to live at peace with everybody. So some of this interpersonal stuff is totally outside of our control. But as much as it matters for us, we have done our part. If somebody else doesn't want to accept it, they don't take the forgiveness they don't take the help. They dump on us. That is not our responsibility. Yeah, we can we can point them to a better way, but uh, the fact that they're not working it out on their side, you know, we have to just be be careful that we are doing our part on being that consistently selfless on our side, versus uh, to see if then our vertical connection is working. So this one particular arrangement, uh, someone has arranged the the commandments in, uh, groups them together in actually one through five. So uh, from the uh, "I am the Lord your God," um, have no other gods before me, all the way down through honor your father and your mother, and then groups you know six through ten in the other group of them, and talking about vertical versus interpersonal relationships. So this is just some food for thought, but I thought it was really kind of interesting in if you actually take this kind of grouping and then look to see what are the connections between those those groups, between your one through five and your six through ten. A little food for thought to help us think about not only our relationships with heaven, but our relationships with humanity. So for example, uh, if you were to group one and six together. So I'm the Lord your God, I have no other gods before me, and do not murder. So um, some folks have observed that though the particular connection can be, we saw back in Genesis that in the, was it verses 26, 27, 28, where it's talking about he makes man in his image, in the image of the God he created them. So thus, murder is 
erasing the image of the Lord on the earth. And we can, all kinds of thoughts on what motivations are for murder, you know, that malice, the, the idea of, uh, as it's described, um, we saw with, uh, in our passage today was talking about the cities of refuge, you know, where someone who does not have enmity towards somebody else where they can flee. So that, that's talking about the, the manslaughter sort of things where the court can decide, well, is it manslaughter or is it actually murder? In this case, talking about uh, murder and thus you see, well, <laughs> it, it goes back to the last couple centuries were expressed uh, so fa- famous or you might say infamously by the philosopher uh, Nietzsche, where he was said, you know, God is dead and we have killed him. And then goes on to say, well, what kind of a, how could we do such a monstrous thing? And <laughs> very perceptively, see, this isn't a diatribe talking about how the Enlightenment um, has taken down and dethroned the influence of the uh, the Torah and the prophets and the Mashiach on Western society and dethrone that with reason, you know, basically reasoning your your way out of reason. <laughs> Be an interesting way to put that. But the interesting point that Nietzsche uh, very ironically got to was that he was saying how enlightened this was and he ends it with the passage of saying that we have made ourselves god to do so to kill god we had to make ourselves god very interesting because that is exactly uh, what the philosophy we see today and the idea of looking down on the word of god looking down also as we see raging in the streets here today and across the world, raging against any sort of law and order, rage, 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 rage against the boundaries. The next thing we'll take a look at is looking at the the second commandment related to idolatry and um, then pair that together with the seventh commandment, the one related to adultery. So an interesting way to think about those is about not perverting the most important relationships in heaven and on earth. So with the idols, you are, (laughs) I I like it how it's talking about, you know, do not have, uh, as it says in the first one, do not have any gods before me or in my face. So, you know, you can think of it kind of very expressed uh, much later in Israel's history. Remember when they took out the, the uh, Ark of the Testimony into battle, uh, thinking, well, it, 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 uh, we had won the battles with the Ark going out with us, so thus it must be the lucky charm. Kind of Raiders of the Ark, Lost Ark thought you know, is the idea. Oh, we just, we just grab this thing, we take it out into battle, and it's this great powerful weapon that just destroys everybody. Well, <laughs> um, the problem was is that if you don't have the occupant there, the one who's dwelling between the Cherubim, then it is a box. It's a very expensive box, and with all that gold on it, you know, kind of a heavy box, but it is a box. And that lesson had to be given to Israel, and so thus Philistia took it in battle because the um, the Lord gave the battle to uh, Philistia in this, and they took it and they stuck it in the temple to one of their gods. Interestingly enough, the the fish god uh, Dagon or Dagon, and I I think it's very humorous how you keep seeing this thing of. Um, the statue, they put it there in the temple and uh, the statue Dagon kept falling on his face, falling on his face. So you get this picture where it's saying uh, in the first commandment, don't have any other gods in my face. And there's Dagon doing a face plant over again and again. And kind of like uh, similar to what you see with the prophet Job when he went up there and declared to Nineveh, you know, um, this place is going to be destroyed. And they repented wore sackcloth and ashes even down to putting it on their livestock. Here you have Philistia gets it 
hey, wait a minute. Uh, Dagon doesn't seem to be that powerful. <laughs> and then especially the emphasize with their uh, <clears throat> um, medical condition that resulted from its presence there in their midst. Um, they got the message, hey, you know, we're not actually in control of things um, as the ancient world used to think it was. You would appeal the the common thought was, and you see it from culture to culture to culture across the planet, was your deity, you appeal to them, and if you do the right this and that and the other, you will prevail. And uh, they were not prevailing with even this most sacred emblem of Israel there in their temple. So, the next thing that... Uh, Oh, well, just to finish up this thought about um, the perverting relationships in heaven and on earth, one of the things that we see is that with adultery, you're saying, okay, your, your vertical relationship with heaven and earth, making sure that that is not, you don't have any other um, thing going on there between it, no other uh, pantheon going on. But also with adultery, you don't have any sort of, you know, um, multiplicity of um, multiplicity of significant others, we might say. So you can see then the the parallels between what happens between people and then also what happens between a person and between heaven. Then moving on to the next one about uh, blasphemy number three, or as it's saying, you know, you um, you take away the the name and make it vain make it of nothing of no account and the third commandment then with the eighth commandment about stealing or as you'll see some sages talk about really relates to um kidnapping or can particularly apply in that idea you can you can see about this kidnapping or hijacking of the lord's reputation to make it of no effect or to make it of ridicule and very similar to that idea of kidnapping, destroying the reputation of other people. You know, we today you've got it maybe so innocuous as, um, as identity theft, you steal somebody else's identity and then destroy it. So you, you can't get loans. Maybe you're locked out of your credit card, your bank accounts. Someone takes your house even, and the idea also of, well, what are we doing if we then seize, take away, we kidnap the reputation of God and then destroy it, portray it falsely in the world? So thus you see later on in the prophets when it says, you know, my name is blasphemed among the nations because of you. So the spreading of Israel into the nations can be a blessing. as in also in addition to the correction of the exiles, so sent into exile because of a correction, but also a blessing to the nations by passing along the testimony of the creator of heaven and earth. Only if you pass along the right testimony, like we were mentioning earlier, if it's a different testimony, then uh, suddenly we realize that we have a big problem. So, going on to our next uh, couplet of commandments to take a look at, taking a look at the fourth commandment related to Shabbat, and also the ninth commandment relating about, uh, as it's commonly said, bear a false witness or testifying falsely. So, just as we had seen related to um, the adultery thing related to blasphemy of perverting the the uh, testimony of heaven and earth here you have also another sort of um, perversion of the testimony because remember these are all 10 testimonies they're called the tablets of the testimony all testifying of a witness to who the lord actually is so number four shabbat the seventh day shabbat is also a memorial to the lord as creator and as creator, it's expressed in Exodus 20. Here in Deuteronomy chapter 5, it's expressed as the liberator. So, why do you rest? 
um, expressed in Exodus 20, because the Lord rested. He stopped there. He brought creation to a completion to then let it become separate from his work. So then we stopped what we are doing, recognize that he is the one who put these things in motion. So in Deuteronomy 5, it's also expressed that, hey, remember that you were servants, you were slaved, you were brought under subjugation. So thus, those who you are responsible for, who report to you, who take their orders, their, their direction from you, you also let them stop. Because just as you were given freedom, so you give freedom and a um, rest, relief to those around you. So, then you see the corollary there in bearing false witness. So, if the part of the witness of the testimony of the Lord is as creator and as liberator, so thus, we in our dealings, what do we witness? What do we um, give witness to if we were to give witness to the uh, creator on earth? This one specifically in number nine related to bearing false witness in a trial. But if we, as it's, as it ex, it's expressed in uh, the gospels, you know, we're brought in before tribunals or whatever, what are we testifying about? And it's described that the Shabbat is a sign. And we see it later on in, in revelation where it's talking about to remember, to worship the one who made heaven and earth, the seas and everything that is in them. So that is a message for the latter days, as much as it is for our day here today, as much as it is for anything around there. So thus with the Shabbat is a correct um, and a accurate memorial of the Lord as creator and as liberator. So what do we do with the Shabbat? Are we testifying falsely in what we do with our memorializing of Shabbat? Are we memorializing something else? Have we changed the memorial of it? Now, there are other memorials that do encapsulate uh, the other works of God. And, you know, one of the things we were talking about specifically related to uh, some of the things that our brothers and sisters in the body of Messiah have been taught related to the Shabbat that it is its its um, reverence has been uh, transferred over to a different day related to the resurrection. Well, as as we've seen related to the memorials of God, there is actually a memorial that talks about the memorial of the resurrection, and you see that Yeshua with his resurrection actually coincided with that particular memorial of the, uh, the, as it's called, the first fruits or the beginning of the harvest. So we see the, the connection between his death at Pesach, at Passover, resurrection at first fruits, and then you see also the connection later on with the coming of the Spirit of God with power at Shavuot there 50 days later. So another connection that we see here wrapping out the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, the Ten Testimonies of the Lord, we could see a connection uh, perhaps between the, the Fifth Commandment about honoring your parents for their, really for their role in your existence, they, as it talks about the blessing that your days may be long on the earth, and about coveting. So, one of the things about coveting is the, as we've talked about when we went through the Ten Commandments, that coveting is the aspect of a desire, but a desire that even as it's, <laughs> you could say, sin crouching at your door, well, this is desire crouching at your door, but what then do you do with it? If you desire someone else's stuff or that which is in their realm, not your realm, well, what then do you do? Do you try to uh, take it from them. But in this case, this is, do you try to uh, make it not theirs? And we see that with the 
aspect of honoring or, you know, to kavod, to give weight to, to give honor to, to give um, a way that you might say to recognize their role as a little creator of us, of each of us. Now, we've said this many times before that there are some of us that came from bad households, bad parents, parents that you could say, well, they're not worthy of honor. But one thing that we have to recognize is that there is honor that is due from the fact that we come from somewhere else. We come from something we did not make ourselves. And, uh, (laughs) We see that expressed in the last closing part of the parasha today in chapter seven about realizing, hey, you were a small among the nations, but you were given the great honor. You were led out of the house of bondage and led in to the house of freedom. You might say the land of the promise, the land of rest. So in a similar way, even if we're in a situation where um, we see the issue today about uh, coveting envies uh, in a very similar spot of that. Well, we're like, they didn't deserve it. So we'll just go and take it, you know, Oh, they're rich. You know, they can afford it. If we just take some of their stuff, Uh, they didn't deserve it. So we take it. We might think the same thing of our parents. They didn't, they were not worthy of honor. So we will take their role from them. And we see that also um, expressed in our other relationships, which is where we'll get to next as we close out our discussion here today. As we go on through, uh, we've started it here today. This is uh, Moshe's second address, kind of the, the second major group of teachings that spans really much of the book. It goes from the latter part of what we have in chapter four, starting from verse 44, and really goes through chapter 28. And as we saw when we were uh, cruising through the book of Devarim on um, one year during Sukkot, when we, it was one of the, the year where you're to read through it. So we read through it and we saw um, this is just one person's collection of these um, sections it seems plausible. It helps to see that Devarim is not just the grab bag of, of different commands and stuff, but they're actually grouped together in perhaps a, a logical collection. So you see that we have the Ten Commandments in chapter 5, and the people respond to the Ten Commandments in chapter 5, and you might say that it was a more of a gracious recounting of of uh, not only what happened there at Sinai, but also the response of the, the, the next generation to it. But then we see in chapter 6, really through chapter 26, that the Ten Commandments are really unfolded and elaborated upon. Um, and specifically, and this is going to look like an eye chart here, but um, this just lays it out. We'll begin going through this in more detail as the weeks roll on and as we close out the Torah cycle. But this is just one um, person's arrangement of them that can help make sense with all of these uh, commands and instructions that we have from chapter 6 all the way through a good part of uh, chapter 26. So we have in chapter 6 through 11, where it looks like you could you could group these together in under the first commandment, you know, um, of loving, uh, I'm the Lord, your God who took you out of the house of bondage and have no other gods before me. And so those combined what we saw in chapter six about, uh, loving the Lord with the Shema about fall only following the Lord, which we just got into in chapter seven and then continuing on, they're about um, boasting about our own righteousness, which I think that's a, a great lesson there in chapter nine of Deuteronomy. And again, another adjuration about keeping the commands of the Lord in chapter 11. Second commandment um, could be described there in chapter 12 of Deuteronomy uh, about the third commandment about blasphemy chapters 13 and good part of chapter 14 
picking up with Shabbat. Now, this is this is what I was think is kind of helpful. Um, the fourth commandment, um, chapter fourteen, verse twenty-two through uh, about half of sixteen. It groups together. You've got where it's talked about tithe, the the sabbatical year, the Shemitah. You got Pesach, Passover, Shavuot, Pentecost. Then you also have uh, Sukkot or Tabernacles. They're in uh, chapters 14, 15, and 16. And the interesting thing, what you see in all of those, you say about these are the times to stop and to remember the creator, to, to stop and remember where things come from. You'll see that that is a lot of what the instruction is about the tithe. Okay, remember where the things come from. The Shemitah, okay, remember where the things come from in the land. And that, you know, you're not the, the master of everything. Uh, Pesach, you know, remember who took you out of Mitzrayim. And Shavuot, okay, you're at the mountain uh, receiving the testimony of the Lord. And Sukkot, another, um, uh, also Shavuot is listed in these uh, harvest festivals as well. And Sukkot is about the last harvest of the year. But remembering where things come from, but also who is the one who's leading you through this. And with Sukkot, you see the great fulfillment of finally entering the rest, which is um, foretold and foreseen through the Shabbat as a sign, but also something you see hinted at in Hebrews chapters 3 and 4, where it talks about entering his rest, entering the land as being a prefiguring of entering the kingdom of heaven in the latter days. So we get a taste of it every single week of entering the kingdom of heaven. So chapters uh, 16, 18 uh, seem to riff on, on the fifth commandment about human authority, talking about judges, courts of law, what the king should do. Uh, the priests and the Levites, and as we saw a little snippet of it today, true and the false prophets mentioned in uh, chapter 18. Now, that's something we also see uh, talked about in chapter 13, which seems to be in a group of discussions about blasphemy in the third commandment. But also, uh, continuing on with chapters uh, 19 and 20, 19, 20, and 21, looks to be talking about killing and you get grouped together a whole bunch of things related to war again the cities of refuge and about um the firstborn and rebellious sons the burial of the executed things that just seem like a grab bag but it's all in the context of what is the proper way to address death and to address the taking of a life as we mentioned there with the cities of refuge, it is a great acknowledgement that even if it was unintentional, life still has been taken. The life in the blood has still been spilled. The person is dead. We have to acknowledge that that is a huge and great loss. So even with manslaughter, it's not in the eyes of heaven. It's not seen as a, even a, a very light thing. Even in some cases you say that it is necessary, but uh, that is something that even if it's necessary or it had to happen because the other outcome was even worse, you still have to acknowledge that there is a loss that happens, which is also on the theme of uh, whether we're uh, looking at the Tisha B'Av or the, the ninth day of Av, the ninth day of the fifth month, where we have the memorial that we've had earlier this week about the destructions of the temples that have happened over time and other things that have happened on the same day of the Israel's calendar. Again, that's why the book of Lamentations is a really great lesson in that, in that we should pause to reflect upon loss. Shouldn't just paper it over, you know, pretend that everything is okay. We have to acknowledge it when we have a loss, when other people have a loss, that's why the, you have the tradition of uh, sitting shiva or just having a time where you pause. You pause to mourn because in this life, we do have sorrows. Even if we do look out to the future and know that in the end, that everything will be made new. There will be no more pain, no more 
death, no more destruction. All the former things will be wiped away. But still, we have to remember that there has been a loss. Even if there is the promise and the one who makes the promise, we can trust the promise that he will make all things new. Why? Because he made things new in the beginning. He has made things new in us. Then we can trust that he will keep his word. As we even saw in our last parasha in, in Devarim, the opening chapters of Deuteronomy, that he even keeps his word to preserve nations that really don't, you could say, deserve it. And we saw that even in chapter seven of Deuteronomy here today, where you might say, well, Israel really didn't deserve the honor yet because of the promise, the Lord is faithful. So because he is faithful, even when you might say the the people are undeserving. So thus, when there is the promise of things made new, that is a promise that we know that is faithful and we can really depend upon it. So that's as far as we're going to take things here uh, today. Are there any comments or questions? If you can unmute yourself. No, I was reading the, uh, the Haftorah that goes along with it in Isaiah. Uh-huh. Yes, and it was Isaiah. very interesting that right there, when we go to this parish, uh, that it changes from talking about the past to talking about the future. Mm-hmm. First, first, from, from chapter 40 on in Isaiah, it's yes. all about the future and Messiah. It's very interesting. Yes. So where we, that's, that's why, you know, this passage is, uh, comes up and they talk about the Shabbat of comforting, the Shabbat of consolation. So it is interesting that even where you have the conjunction of remembering the great loss that has come through the destructions, uh, the, through the, the Ichavod that has happened, the abomination of desolation that has happened in Israel you still have that promise out there that the things will reverse. And as you see in Lamentations, that that which is, um, we could say is, is a curse, those things will turn around and become a blessing. That the, as you know, mentioned there in Nehemiah again, that these fast days will be turned into feast days because those uh, great things are reversed. Father God, we thank you for giving us your words and we thank you for giving us your testimonies through all your servants through times. We thank you for giving us these these things that are recorded for our benefit, our correction, and for the teach us and to teach our children and the next generations wherever we go throughout the day who you are and what you've done in our lives, what you're doing in the world and what you will do to make all things new. We thank you for all these things in the name of your son, Yeshua. Amen. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O, halal dot info.